if you're the the quickest in the market to deliver a job to to a person, especially if they're let's say already in Germany and in need of another job, yeah, um, you always have access to them. And um, as we see it uh, currently, we do not pay for any ads um, on the supply side of, of the market, so on the caregiver side. Okay. Um, and we haven't for weeks now, and we still, uh, only through word of mouth, we, we receive over a thousand applications. This episode is brought to you by WHU, the Otto Beisheim School of Management. WHU is reshaping the way students learn about business, management, finance, and entrepreneurship through its innovative programs and partnerships in Germany and across the globe. To learn more about this globally ranked university, visit whu.edu today. Hi, folks. Welcome back to another thrilling episode of the Most Awesome Founder podcast. Today, we are joined by Philip Boer, a visionary entrepreneur who is revolutionizing the healthcare industry through technology. He's the co-founder of Marta, an innovative platform that connects caregivers with families in need of support all across Europe. In this episode, we dive deep into the world of healthcare technology and explore the unique opportunities and challenges that come with being a digital disruptor in such a critical industry. So sit back, relax, and prepare to be inspired as we embark on a fascinating journey into the mind of one of the most dynamic founders in the healthcare industry. Without further ado, let's welcome Philip to the Most Awesome Founder podcast. Coming to you from WHU, on the banks of the Rhine River, in beautiful Fallendar, Germany, this is the best and most awesome founder podcast. A show about entrepreneurs, innovators, advisors, and educators, and the stories that make them who they are today. Philip, welcome to the most awesome founder podcast. Uh, great that you could join us. Um, as always, we start these episodes with giving our guests the opportunity to tell something about their personal background. Uh, do you want to shine some light on your history as a founder or even as a child, depending on what you think is most interesting for us? Sure thing. Not positive whether it's interesting, but I've been always fascinated by building something myself and, and doing something myself outside of, of, of the ordinary. And uh, the first way as a child to, to, to make money um, next to, to actually working and being paid by the hour uh, was uh, buying and reselling used uh, furniture. Uh, and then I got also in, in buying and reselling wines. Um, both of these, okay. these industries uh, weren't very efficient and I just had a, a great deal of fun um, seeing that I could make so much more money and then by going uh, out and about gardening for other people where I was paid to yeah. just by the hour, no, much, no matter how much work I would actually put into um, this, uh, this job by the hour. Um, and uh, later on, I, I found myself in sales uh, prior to my studies uh, at WHU. Um, I actually did door-to-door -door sales. And uh, also there, uh, what uh, motivated me was the better I was at my job. The faster I was, uh, the better I was paid. And uh, okay. that always kept with me uh, this idea of, um, of doing something faster or more efficient and uh, getting more out of it from that. 
Yeah, because for me personally, doing this door-to-door thing seems like the most <laughs> terrible job to do, <laughs> that you have to convince people. What did you sell door-to-door? Can you maybe... Of, of course. Um, I actually got into the job um, at first uh, just uh, out of curiosity. Um, I wanted the okay. challenge to see if I could do it. Um, we sold uh, uh, contracts uh, for donations uh, to the Naturschutzbund okay. and the Johanniter. So that was for good cause. Um, and only after the first week, um, I realized, okay, I can actually uh, make money off this, like serious money, rather than just paying for my expense. And uh, that was uh, quite the useful uh, learning um, in, in that door-to-door sales, because uh, when I started Marta, uh, the first month, uh, I was the only uh, salesperson uh, on the phone. Yeah. Um, so having lost sort of that, uh, that first... Uh, yeah, feeling of, of, of maybe being too intimate to approach people, you, you totally lose that. When, when you go to, to yeah. hundreds of doors day by day, uh, you just go um, and approach <laughs> people directly um, and pick up the phone um, no matter what. Okay. I, I, can you maybe share a little secret about what you learned in terms of being a successful door-to-door salesman? What, what do you need to do? Um, so... The first one is just number, um, the number of doors you, you ultimately get to, right? So you need to yeah. be fast and uh, you need to get to, to every door and as many doors as possible uh, in the day and uh, get in the mindset of, hey, I'm going to close this person, even though the chance is like below 5% of closing somebody at the door on a bad day, even below 1%. And um, only with the mindset that you will close this person, um, this works out. Um, and uh, yeah. keeping up the motivation through that um, was quite difficult in the beginning. But uh, once you realize, okay, um, I'm, I'm not too bad at this, uh, you, you start uh, start being more, more motivated. Okay. Yeah. Very interesting. Because I was watching your um, LinkedIn profile uh, and I saw that you also have been uh, at a certain time, a management associate for a, a CEO in the Bertelsmann Group, when I understood it well. And I think management associate is a bit like you're the little helper of the CEO. Uh, and actually, I see a lot of students nowadays take that kind of role as a starting position after they graduated. Um, looking back, would you do it again? Or was it a, a valuable role to do? Or, or would you rather say, oh, maybe it's better just to immediately start yourself something instead of doing this little helper of the CEO thing? So how did I get there and what did I want out of it? Um, yeah. Do my studies at WHU, I was both in the private equity space and in consulting um, because that was just the thing that you'd do um, if you were yeah. sort of uh, <laughs> ambitious. <laughs> Um, but neither struck me as, as the right space for me. Um, I started a business in my first semester at WHU um, where we would uh, produce fast-moving consumer goods in China. And uh, we were one of the first brands to, to sell via Instagram. And that initially was super successful. But uh, that was also just due to good timing. We were branding and selling over this channel prior to it being a paid ad channel prior to any bigger brands being on there. And as these bigger brands came in, we quickly lost market share. 
and uh, I realized, okay, um, I have a lot to learn and uh, I have a lot of practical uh, knowledge to, to gain of like in how to do business. And mm -hmm. I didn't see myself learning that in consulting or the private equity M&A um, world. And uh, that was my ambition in, in looking for a job uh, outside of, of, of these industries uh, that would chill, still challenge me. And um, I had the chance to assist one of the CEOs of Bertelsmann, which was great uh, at the time because I learned a lot. But it wasn't ultimately the learnings that uh, retrospectively um, would have been most beneficial to me. Because Bertelsmann is a company of 120,000 employees, um, offices, I believe, in, in like 100 countries. And uh, you assist the CEO um, and uh, he takes important decisions. but you're likely not going to see the result of these decisions, right? Because it's very corporate. You take a decision and prior to this decision actually taking effect month and month or even years go by. And you don't have this immediate learning as in a startup. So um, I was very grateful for, for Jan, my co-founder, who had uh, done a similar job at Summer. And uh, they had an entirely different experience um, because he directly saw decisions going into effect and seeing the results within days or weeks, right? Because when he joined, Summer uh, was, I believe, at like 500 employees, uh, a super dynamic company still. So yes, I would do it again. Um, if uh, it, it should uh, function as, as a stepping stone to, to get self-employed though, I would uh, rather go in earlier stage company uh, than in a big uh, corporate um, structure. Okay, yeah. And so in the end, that's how you then uh, decided to co-found uh, Marta together with uh, Jan, who is also a WAU alumnus, if I got it right, not? Yes, uh, yes. We, we were living together at WHU. And, uh, okay. So we knew, so you knew kept each other very well. And then... <laughs> okay. And uh, always had that because, the dream of yeah. doing something together. Okay. Because that that's, I would say, a very hot topic in my classes, when I discuss with students about how to successfully found a company, uh, one of the things that we typically discuss is, should you do it together with another WAU alumnus? And I would say that the, the opinions are quite diverse when I ask that to my students. Some would say yes, others would say definitely not. <laughs> um, apparently, you chose to do it together with a WAU alumnus. Uh, uh, what did you see as the advantages to have shared this kind of common WAO background? I got to know Jan extremely well by living with him and um, mm. also after our studies, uh, keeping very close. So we both knew what we got into and uh, that I believe is extremely important and is more important than anything else that you actually get along with your co-founder. Um, and also in times of stress, um, you know that the other person can handle this and uh, both remain somewhat objective in the situation. Um, and you can look at uh, any problem together and really think, okay, how are we going to approach that uh, without having any, any uh, pre precautions about uh, hurting somebody's feelings or not, right? If you get to know a person uh, that often stands in the way of efficient uh, collaboration and having sort of that cleared out 
um, outweighed the the sort of reduced level of um, of uh, of a discrepancy in knowledge, right? Um, yeah. Like, how compatible are you um, together? And then the question yeah. is, does the other person bring a skill or a knowledge uh, to the table that you don't have? And uh, on, on the personal note, we are extremely different, Jan and I. Um, okay. From the outside, people might not, uh, not see that uh, in, in the first 10 minutes, but also talking to investors, at least after uh, the, the second or third call, they, they always see that we're quite different. Uh, Jan is the much more creative person. I'm the more analytical, um, disciplined uh, person uh, who digs himself into into problems. Um, but uh, yeah, uh, that that works well together. Yeah. So you have this this shared background. Uh, you have you have experience together from the past, uh, but also in kinds of the skills that you have, there's still some difference. Yeah. Okay. Clear. Makes sense. Definitely. And right okay, there, maybe what's let's... the alternative? Um, you have the alternative of finding somebody that you don't know, and uh, yeah. you you take a huge uh, risk uh, on yeah. that. And yeah. um, obviously, it would be beneficial for for one of the people to have more more of a technical background. Um, mm -hmm. But I believe you can always find great people, and uh, we have an amazing uh, CTO, um, and uh, that uh, that isn't uh, mutually exclusive, right? Yeah. So uh, you quickly involve the CTO to kind of compensate maybe the lack of technological skills that you needed and that both you and Jan didn't have. Correct. Yeah, makes sense. Okay. So in the end, you and Jan uh, started <coughs> Marta. Uh, can you maybe for our audience explain a bit more what, what Marta is exactly doing? What kind of pain point you're solving? Of course. So we're in the living care um, industry. Um, that means we recruit caregivers uh, onto our platform that then move in with elderly, take care of the household um, and the basic hygiene of, of these elderly in need of care. Um, and that's similar just to, to any other marketplace, Fiverr or Upwork. Um, you have somebody posting a job and then somebody uh, applying who wants to fulfill the job. Yeah, you have profiles uh, like some newspapers uh, uh, titled as the... The, the tinder uh, of, of the care industry um, yeah. and that's how you have to imagine it um, what pain point are we solving with that there wasn't a marketplace in this industry before us and the uh, reason is that most of the, the care workers come from Eastern Europe and they migrate to Western Europe to look for work and you typically had three to five parties involved in the mediation process between a family looking for care and the caregiver. And uh, that obviously increases the cost of transaction cost up to 70% of the money that a family would pay would, would end up with mediators rather than the caregiver. And the information uh, flow is also super inefficient and incomplete, such that oftentimes the wrong parties would be, be mediated or like be matched. Um, and ultimately, the success of uh, of this this match between a caregiver and a family was extremely low. So what we did, firstly, we we increased efficiency in the matching process, increasing the salary for caregivers by thirty five to fifty percent, decreasing um, the the amount of money that the family needs to pay by ten to fifteen percent, while offering a more transparent, more efficient matching process 
in between. Yeah, okay. Um, and just as a kind of side question, how did you and Jan came to this topic? Because it seems to be not a and we, we talk a lot about founder market fit, yeah? so that you need to solve a problem that is kind of close to your heart or with whom you have experienced yourself. And this whole topic of elderly care seems to quite, be quite distant from your own personal background. Can you explain a bit how you came to this topic? Why you decided to develop this marketplace? Sure thing. It's very similar to, to a lot of founders' uh, stories. Um, Jan and I always had this idea of starting something together <clears throat> and we got together um, every now and then and uh, thought of, of topics that that uh, other teams would be solving in the US and China, but nothing sort of uh, struck us um, to, to be the right topic for us and we didn't feel passionate about that to leave all opportunities um, we, we had apart from that uh, out. So when COVID hit, I was back at home, my hometown, Bonn, um, where I was faced uh, with my family needing to take care of four grandparents uh, who wanted to stay and did stay at home aging. Okay. And um, they had lived in caregivers and they had lived in caregivers for the course of five years. And uh, by then only I realized that my, my mom had been working with 10 different agencies and uh, about 30 caregivers have been in and out of the homes of my grandparents over the last years. Um, and it, it struck me one night that I was thinking about all these hypothetical problems that somebody might have. And I was having yeah. a real problem myself and my family um, and that I should go um, to f and find out more about this. Um, and uh, after sort of uh, doing the first couple of hours of market research, I called Jan um, and told him, hey, um, that's the situation in my family. And he was like directly relating to that because uh, his grandparents also had uh, living caregivers and that wasn't working out. And uh, they were supposed to go to a retirement home now because they couldn't find a right caregiver. Um, so yeah, um, we have to experience ourselves um, of the problem, um, but we obviously didn't have any relevant experience in order to deliver a solution. Um, so I went about to actually be, become a living caregiver myself for a couple of days to okay. experience this firsthand. And, um, then I moved to, to Warsaw to uh, work in an existing agency that recruit caregivers because, uh, that seemed to, to be the, the problem that I was less, um, less prone to, to be able to solve, uh, given my, my background. Um, so yeah, we, we went through that, uh, first to, to acquire the knowledge necessary. Okay. So you really experienced then the problem by yourself, by actually taking the role of a caregiver to really understand the kind of pain points that they were facing and how your marketplace could potentially solve that. Yeah. So we were talking about uh, the fact that you, um, have this marketplace where you're trying to connect the caregivers with the people that need the care. Um, now. A two-sided marketplace has its advantages, but also its challenges. And uh, as you explained before, you're sometimes kind of seen as the, the Tinder of uh, the healthcare industry. Now that of course triggers also issues in terms of, uh, how do I have to say, uh, safety, yeah, that people need to be safe, that the caregiver that they get is what they want and that there is, cannot be an abuse. Can, can you tell us a bit more about how you 
uh, try to address that safety issue related to your platform? Of course. Um, can you give us uh, go through through any through a standardized vetting process, and um, that is similar to a KYC process in the beginning. So we check the identity of the caregiver, and we check the address of the caregiver in their home country. We have the possibility of checking if there are any open court cases um, against uh, caregivers, uh, so on, on the criminal okay. side. Um, and then there's a, a test of their language skills, right? That is uh, important for a lot of people initially. Um, yeah. That is all by a video call. Uh, and then we also go about and uh, in situational interviews, testing, do they actually have experiences uh, with uh, illnesses uh, that they, they talk about? We uh, check for references uh, of the caregivers and only then caregivers are allowed to, to apply to jobs um, with families. Yeah, okay. And so as I understand it, it's mainly people from other countries, mostly Eastern Europe, that are looking to become a caregiver in Germany. And your platform then tries to establish the match between people that are in need of caregivers and the people that are willing to come to Germany uh, to become a caregiver, not? Correct. Yeah. Um, it's an existing market. So we have around 500 to 700,000 live-in caregivers that come okay. to Germany each year in order to okay. perform this job. So okay. we're recruiting out of an existing market and we're okay. not creating uh, this market. That is important uh, to explain because it uh, yeah. makes clear what pro problems we're ultimately facing, right? We're trying to make an existing market more efficient. Okay. And at the same time, um, because how do you, <laughs> we in, in the academic world then sometimes talk about kind of self-selection that, that of course you might have an issue that the, how do you say the, the good caregivers, they have their established system and they are already fully, um, uh, in supply. Whereas you might have the risk as a new entrant that you only get access to the caregivers that do not find work in the established system so that you get the kind of the, the lemons in the, the auto uh, industry. Uh, is that an issue or, or are you able to circumvent that in one way or another? The market that we are facing has a very high frequency of the pain point that we're trying to solve. So mm. the matchmaking that needs to happen between a family and caregiver needs to happen often. And that's why people drop out of the existing market um, frequently enough for us um, not to, to be faced with this problem. Um, in practice, that means a caregiver finds a job with a family and uh, they typically go into this job for two, three months at a time and they work anywhere okay. between six and nine months a year. Uh, right, because they, they go to Germany, okay. they earn money, then they go back home to their families, they spend time with them, they spend the money, then they go back uh, and go about their okay. job. So they found a family, now they're there for like 10 weeks, and uh, they leave uh, and uh, back to, to Romania or Poland or Lithuania, and another caregiver comes to the family. Now, if the life of the first caregiver isn't in perfect sync with a second caregiver, uh, the first caregiver will not be able to come back to the same family, right? Yeah. Um, let's say the, the first caregiver is uh, 
daughter falls sick when she's supposed to return to the family, then the family will need to look for another caregiver via our platform to fill this job, right? Yeah. And they yeah. will not kick out this caregiver a week later only because their first caregiver is available again. Um, yeah. That creates a suboptimal customer experience for the families. And reality mm. ultimately is that most families have one favorite caregiver that always returns, but they replace this caregiver um, in between always with, with different ones. Now we're looking at live-in care as sort of the, the last step um, of at-home care. And reality is mm. that oftentimes the elderly also fall sick. They need to go to the hospital um, or in the worst case, they even pass away. In that case, the caregiver needs another job immediately. So if you're the, the quickest in the market to deliver a job to, to a person, especially if they're, let's say, already in Germany and in need of another job, yeah, um, you always have access to them. And um, as we see it uh, currently, we do not pay for any ads. Um, on the supply side of, of the market, so on the caregiver side. Okay. Um, and we haven't for weeks now, and we still, uh, only through word of mouth, we, we received yeah. over a 1,000 applications of caregivers uh, in a month that want to work with us. Um, so okay. they really see the benefit of this marketplace because they have been in the industry on average for like 10 years. So for them, seeing, hey, I can earn more, I can select my own job, and this is super yeah. quick um, in if, if it's needed, um, delivers a sufficient benefit for them um, to, to download our app and uh, always first be looking for a job with us if they're going yeah. to, to look for a job. Yeah. yeah, so you offer a kind of flexibility that others cannot provide to these people. Yeah, clear. Correct. Okay. And at, at the moment, you're actually, at least um, you were selected as one of the top 100 growing companies by Glassdoor in 2022, which seems to indicate that you're growing uh, quickly. Um, as kind of managing a, a two-sided platform and growing quickly, what is a big, the biggest challenge that you have in terms of making the, the network working? So we did have for, for the first 24 months, of, of the marketplace um, ever interchanging a supply than a demand problem. <laughs> it was always like when okay. we felt we had okay. solved one, yeah. um, we, we had a shortage of, of the other. And yeah. um, only through actually delivering a much more superior customer experience for the caregivers, we've seen that over the past now nearly half a year, uh, we have a strong supply overhang. And uh, we believe that the the market on the caregiver side is more efficient because the people are new to the market. So the caregivers have the comparison. They know that our um, product is better and that they prefer it. The mm. caregivers also stick um, around in the market much longer, right? If you look at caregivers yeah. doing the job for 20, 30 years, um, mm. you lock them in once and they stick with you. Families, though, there's, they naturally churn out at some point yeah. because people will pass away. Um, mm. Right, and then for the market entry, the families they don't know what a good or a better product or service looks like because they are not familiar no. with the market. Oftentimes, and it's it's the kids booking this right. It's the first yeah. time for them, and oftentimes they fall prey to false promises 
of of small players in the market that work mm. very analog and give you a low low chance of success um, just because they come from from a personal level there. So that's something yeah. that we currently uh, are putting a lot of work in to to improve uh, on on that side in creating more trust uh, in into our brand and our service for people who are also engaging with this market the first time in their life. Okay, and and can you give an example of how to do, what kind of marketing channels do you use to make that happen? So you you always start out with like Zia, right? That's like search ads because they they typically de deliver the best uh, results. Mm. Um, now we're looking at a market though where our typical customer group is between 50 and 60 because we're talking yeah. about the the children of of the elderly. And yeah. while they are all digital, to them it's not not sort of the default solution if they have a problem to go onto the internet and search for it. Yeah. So next to that, we're building up a partner network. That means uh, we're looking at uh, all other um, companies and service providers in the industry and partner with them. That being the ambulance care service providers, daycare services, clinics also, right? Um, and uh, get them to recommend us. And vice okay. versa. Um, okay. And next to that, there's there's uh, still the the old school uh, channels of um, out of home um, ads, uh, newspaper ads, um, PR. Um, we're actually now testing radio. Um, we're okay. delivering uh, flyers uh, across uh, um, bigger cities. Um, so really, um, that's trial and error. Okay, and so this this network approach or this partner approach, what is then the advantage of your partners to recommend Marta? How do they have an advantage in that in that respect? So you have groups that we can uh, incentivize uh, to do this uh, for us. So okay. they get a referral fee, and okay. uh, for others, it's just purely um, out of uh, a good cause because we can convince them that uh, we are the best partner. Uh, to, to mm. work with and uh, for example hospitals in germany they have uh, an obligation to ensure that somebody who who leaves the hospital is being taken care of going forward so they fulfill an obligation uh, by recommending us similarly uh, the health insurance if you call them they have to provide you with a catalog yeah. of, of of options what to do and uh, yeah. these options are just scarce so being one of yeah. them um, is, is quite a good place to be in. Yeah, because that was also one of the things I was now thinking. What is your relationship with the insurers? Because often, at least in Germany, to what extent I, I can understand it, the insurance are a very important actor in this ecosystem. So if you have a, a parent that suddenly becomes very sick and can no longer take care of him or herself, then often you would call the insurer and then they at least promise to kind of provide a solution. And so then you're just one of their kind of potential solutions or how do you have to see it? Exactly. Um, okay. The insurer is being, being asked about this um, and they have to, to recommend you something. Um, but uh, like in, in the entire healthcare or elderly care industry, um, we, we have a problem of, of too little personnel. Um, so also there, uh, the extra consultation that should be happening um, 
oftentimes it isn't happening to a degree that is sufficient to actually help out families and mm. uh, them knowing thereafter uh, what, what the best course of action is. Therefore, um, this, this job of care consultants uh, was created in Germany a couple of years ago. Um, not okay. enough people know about it, but uh, that's supposed to fill exactly that gap. Um, if you have somebody in need of care, you can consult somebody who's specifically educated only to help you figure out what's the best course of action in order to allow somebody to age uh, in dignity. And these care consultants are uh, part of the insurer or is this just a separate? Uh... It's separate and uh, that's uh, privately organized. So okay. uh, that's also a group um, of, of people that we can collaborate with um, very, very easily. Um, there are only mm. very few larger companies. Uh, most of them are, are sole proprietors going about this job. Um, former ambulant care workers uh, that um, either just prefer the consulting uh, work uh, or have grown tired of, of the working hours um, and, and conditions in the care industry itself. Okay, so then again, if my parents would get sick, I can contact such a care consultant saying, look, this is a situation and you can explain them. And then they would give you a kind of recommendation about what is the best option to take, I suppose. Correct. And then you guys could be one of the options. Right. Uh, and of course, that means that for you, it's important that, how do I have to say, that you become one of their most suggested options. Is there a way to influence that, that, that you get kind of on top of the list of the insurers and these care consultants to make sure that they kind of quite quickly recommend you and not another competitor? I believe that's just through delivering the best service yeah. and showing and proving um, that people in need of care will have the highest um, chance of success uh, for um, a, a good quality live-in care service for booking this with us. And um, just by explaining to people that we take out um, two to three parties out of the mediation process, um, making this more efficient, uh, not only on the monetary side, but also on the information exchange and, and thereafter the success rate of, of caregivers staying longer with families um, will do the trick. And it has done already uh, in, yeah. in the first instances. Yeah, because I... When I talk with my students again about digital description and that kind of stuff, uh, I think healthcare is always seen as an industry that is very uh, rife for description. Yeah, so we all see that the industry has a lot of pain points that that need to be solved in a digital way. And at the same time, it's one of the industries that has seen limit very limited digital description. Based on your experience now in this industry for the past two years, do you have an explanation of why it's so difficult to digitally disrupt the healthcare industry? I believe there are multiple factors. Firstly, it's um, while we're not uh, in, in a regulated market because live in care is considered a private service that isn't okay. directly subsidized um, by the health um, insurances, but uh, can only be supported um, through grants that are not tied to the service directly. Um, the regulation usually um, delivers or kills innovation to some degree, mm. right? Because yeah. it's not a free market. 
and yeah. uh, we, we all know that innovation typically arrives in free markets uh, first. Um, then secondly, a lot of the healthcare industry just is like you need this personal touch, right? Um, most elderly wouldn't want to be taken care of a robot and yeah. we don't even have the technology to do this, right? So mm. um, in score, like it's difficult to, to sort of like be disruptive about the care that is being provided, but uh, you can only disrupt how the care is accessed and uh, how you manage it, mm. right? You can't solve the problem. You can only manage it um, in that case. Um, but uh, to, to get back to, to, to the first topic, the regulation is the, the biggest challenge, I believe, but also the biggest yeah. opportunity. Because if you get into a market, sort of looking ahead, what kind of regulative changes are we going to see? And mm. most often they do not come out of uh, thin air. Um, yeah. And you're in the right position. And that is an extremely um, good position to be in. And ultimately, we also expect that the live-in care services will become part of the, the healthcare subsidized services in, in the future, like we've seen, okay. for example, in Austria. And obviously, mm. then this service becomes uh, attainable um, for a lot more people in Germany than it already is. Yeah. So that means uh, the, the, the services that are not really related to getting sick, but more your kind of... Because as I understand it, for instance, you're not also allowed to, or your caregivers are not allowed to give medicine to the people that they take care of, because that would be outside their kind of responsibility, if I understand it, not? In Germany, you're actually allowed to do a lot, even without an education. If um, okay. prior you've been shown by, by a doctor or a trained personal on how to do this. Um, okay. Nevertheless, there are limits to this, and we also do not recommend uh, people to do this because we see that the, the medical services, they should be done by ambulant care services. That's what they're educated for and that's what they're supposed to do. Um, mm. So, yeah, in general, you're correct. Uh, we, we shouldn't um, mediate um, non-skilled labor that uh, provides uh, medical services. Yeah, okay. Because if you then look a bit forward to how the health industry is evolving and how you, you could actually take the opportunities that you identify, can you, can you show us a bit your kind of vision about in what kind of direction the health industry is moving? Because there are a lot of challenges, not, not only regulation, but simply the kind of um, how we create a necessary financial uh, power to support the system is also something that is heavily challenged, I suppose. Uh, does that trigger opportunities for you guys in one way or another? Certainly. Now, I obviously look at more of the the elderly care uh, industry yeah. rather than, than the entire healthcare landscape. Uh, but to put that into numbers, we have in Germany 5 million people uh, in need of care. And 80% uh, of, of those are being taken care of at home. And uh, we'll only have more people um, being in need of care as the baby mm. boomer generation um, becomes in need of care. And yeah. we'll not be able to build enough retirement homes for them to significantly um, change the, the split of, of at-home care just being uh, the most prominent 
um, solution for this. Mm. Sadly, this reality of 80% of people being taken care of at home hasn't arrived um, with, with sort of the, the regulations and, and politics around this. We're still yeah. very much focused on always the institutional care. We yeah. have 1.7 million um, care workers in Germany. Only 250,000 of those work in the ambulant care sector. So mm. it seems that we're actually doing a great deal of work in, in the ambulant care space with way less people. Yeah. And I believe we have to think how can we make the job in this industry more attractive or how can we attract people from other countries at a larger scale um, in order to, to help us out uh, with, with this problem. And yeah. uh, that is difficult, right? Because we see across all other industries that uh, people's jobs have, have gotten a lot more attractive over the years, right? There's more flexibility. People can suddenly um, work in, in their home office. In a lot of young companies, uh, you don't have fixed hours. Sort of you have to be there sharp at nine and, until six, but uh, you're floating uh, working times. All of that is not possible in the care industry. So having that, that competition um, for the same workforce makes makes this problem even larger um, yeah. and i don't believe we're, we're aware enough um, of that that whenever we make other industries more attractive we increase the, the problem uh, for example in, in the elderly care industry or other industries that uh, that just don't work remotely for example yeah and do you then also see a, a role uh, for yourself because now the model is uh, if if I hire a caregiver uh, on Marta, uh, they will actually live with my parents for a certain amount of time so that they can provide like a 24-hour assistance. Um, but of course, not everybody needs 24-hour assistance. It can also be that you just need somebody to pass by every day to, I don't know, to uh, wash the person or whatever. Is that an also plan of the future that you would go into this kind of more temporary assistance? Um, because as you said, the numbers indicate that, that, will, that there will be a lot of demand for that kind of services. We refer to that as daycare services. So okay. non-professional caregivers that would come by for on the hourly basis in order to support you. Yeah. Um, and uh, there have been startups in this industry um, okay. already, um, but uh, they haven't been able to deliver on the vision just yet. And uh, I believe that's due to two reasons. Firstly, it's not an existing market. You have to create the market, which is more difficult. Okay. Yeah. At the same time, the economics are less attractive. Mm. You have lower basket sizes that you yeah. as a marketplace can take a fee off. And also you have hyper-local networks. So you need to build a marketplace in each city, right? Because I yeah. have to recruit yeah. the cake that comes by the hour in the same yeah. city or even district as, uh, as the elder. We don't have that problem, uh, which yeah. makes our business model a lot more attractive. I can have a caregiver that comes from central Romania that goes to, to Kiel or to to Munich or to Stuttgart, that doesn't matter, right? If you come yeah. there for like 10 weeks at a time, you can go anywhere. Now, yeah. if we we have a scale of demand 
large enough on our platform, they would be interested in other services as well. Um, we could venture into these other services without having the chicken egg problem in each uh, locality again. And yeah. we're more leaning towards actually partnering with um, with people uh, in other service industries uh, and adjacent services and products uh, in order to, to deliver a better customer solution than uh, directly uh, do all of this ourselves. Yeah, I think that's that's a very interesting point because I, we see actually a lot of startups in the VO ecosystem exactly struggling with that point so that they create a marketplace, but that it's very geographically dependent. And then you actually have to fight the chicken or egg problem every time again when you enter a new city because you cannot kind of transfer supply and demand from other regions. And so you have managed to kind of escape that problem by focusing more on this kind of uh, long-term care uh, where the people come from outside and bringing them in. Okay, it makes lots of sense. I'd always recommend for people having that problem, trying to solve one side of the marketplace first. Um, yeah. Because in marketplaces that uh, require hyper-local networks, that's extremely difficult to expand, especially in, in Germany, because um, you might have examples of, of these marketplaces in the US that you see, and the, you think you can bring them to, to Germany or to Europe. Um, but oftentimes people disregard that, uh, like LA and the Chicago area, New York area, they're such big cities, they have the economic mm. power of entire Germany. And yeah. it's obviously easier there to, to start businesses like that. And some companies in Germany have, have gone and say, okay, we, we first try to solve the demand problem of, of a marketplace. And for supply, for example, in order to ensure that we always have enough supply, we, we leverage existing structures, even if that kills our margin at first entirely, but at least yeah. we get the stone rolling. Um, and that seems uh, to, to be the more uh, efficient uh, solution in order to expand these kinds of marketplaces in, in Germany uh, in, through, through smaller cities. Yeah. Okay. Clear. Okay. Um, maybe um, what we always want to do at the end of the episode is also to get some insights in, in what you're reading at the moment or what you're listening to in terms of podcasts. Do you have any recommendations for our audience in terms of books that you would recommend or podcasts that you're listening to? I really like the books of Ben Horowitz. Um, he, okay. one of them, the hard thing about hard things, um, maybe some others have uh, recommended that it shines a good light on, uh, like being a founder, not being uh, all bright and shiny. Uh, ultimately it's uh, all about, can you, um, can you deal with the struggle that you will be faced, um, in, in this position sooner or later? Um, yeah. and to be a little more cheesy, that's sort of like the Rocky statement it's not about how hard you can hit but how hard you can get get it so yeah. be well aware of that um and he then wrote a book um what you do is who you are how to create a business culture okay and that's a really good book for for anybody to read because uh, the stories that he tells in that uh, are extremely interesting um but visualize this topic of culture and explain it better than anything else I've read. Um, he, he goes about and says, 
it doesn't matter what you say uh, to people, you have to do it. You have to live yeah. uh, by what you want your culture to be. Um, and uh, I see this um, being being the case every day. Okay. Yeah, I let me say it like that. I, sometimes I'm struggling with this kind of people like Ben Horowitz. So on the one hand, I think if you read their blogs and listen to their books or, or read their books, they I think they have, like you said, very interesting kind of recommendations. And then at the same time, I, I don't know if you if you saw it, but then last week they had this very strange press conference where they were kind of um, kind of uh, talking about Saudi Arabia as the next big place for entrepreneurship, and they were talking to the king of Saudi Arabia as the great entrepreneur. <laughs> which, and and again, I don't want to do it black and white, but to call the <laughs> the king of Saudi Arabia the greatest entrepreneur in history. At least you would expect some also more critical reflection. And and so then sometimes it's for me difficult to kind of make the distinction between what they write in the books, which I think makes a lot of sense. And then you see this person on stage that is saying things that, that yeah, I at least from my perspective, sometimes I have difficulties to, to grasp. I, I don't know. Do you sometimes feel that struggle also? Or am I now pushing to, it too far? To be honest, I, I try to refrain um, from idolizing uh, the, yeah. the people. So only yeah. because they, they might be great at one area um, yeah. doesn't mean that I, sh I should blindly follow them in all areas. Yeah. Um, and that alleviates me also from, from the problem that, uh, that you might have um, with them yeah. uh, talking um, uh, about a monarchy uh, in, in a very positive light, uh, dis despite uh, obvious um, problems uh, that, that yeah. we see. Um, so yeah, I, I try to see, take um, the, the best out of, of, yeah. out of these books and uh, then it, it is less relevant uh, to me um, who, who has written that um, yeah, despite yeah. uh, maybe financially um, supporting that individual. Um, but if, if I try to go with, with all of my um, purchase decisions so far as to who, whom am I supporting through this ultimately, uh, I'll be stuck uh, with, with that. <laughs> I try to yeah. take as much time as possible to actually um, work on, on, on my business and, and collect the best uh, ideas around this. No, but I think that that approach makes a lot of sense. So people can say very smart things and that make a lot of sense and that can help you. But therefore, you don't necessarily have to see them as a hero and you don't have to agree with everything else they say. Uh, yeah. So I think that makes a lot of sense. Okay, Philip. Thanks a lot for sharing these insights. And it was actually very interesting to talk a bit about the healthcare industry. I think this is still one of the most fascinating industries that we have. And it's a, such an important industry because we, whether we want or not, we are all faced with it at a certain point in time. And I, I think we need a lot of disruption in that industry or change. Uh, if people don't like the word disruption, maybe change is the better word. Uh, and, and it's good to see that a company like Marta is contributing to that. Uh, and it's, it's very interesting to hear uh, how you guys are trying to position yourself in that. So thanks a lot for that. It was a pleasure speaking to you. Okay. Thanks a lot, Philip. Thank you. Okay. Hope that it was fine for you. Yes, yes, yes. No, I, I really mean it. For me, it's it's a very interesting industry to to talk about because 
it's, it's an industry that is not that used that much in cases in, in our school. Uh, and it's such an important industry. So in that way, it's good to have some examples of entrepreneurs that are active in that industry. It's, um, it's super underserved. But people make it so, so difficult, right? And politics, regulation, um, yeah. you, you can't count on that. You got to imagine our space, you have, um, you have yeah, roughly 700,000 people working in this. It's unregulated. So nobody knows how from a like, labor law perspective, this is even possible that people in Germany work in this space because right. Right, it doesn't fit the nine to five model that people have to work by. And the employer is responsible for it. it just doesn't work if somebody is constantly there and uh, in case of an emergency also delivers support uh, as soon as that's the case that's considered um like working time in germany and uh, like people just close their eyes because all solutions are suboptimal and then typically people in, in our politics don't don't take a decision because it, it obviously falls on, on their feet in, in one way or the, the other. Yeah. yeah. No, that's true. I, I even was not thinking about it, but in terms of labor law, <laughs> it's quite a challenging uh, situation because you have, the old, you have all these kind of temporary contracts and people are kind of 24 hours working, although not all the time, of course, but that's... Uh, yeah. Yeah, so our first investor was uh, uh, CMS. It's the biggest law firm of Europe, and they did their first startup investment in us. through okay. um, a deal whereby we received their services for equity because we could have never paid the legal fees that we've been faced with already in, in trying to venture forward uh, in, in this market. Um, so that was quite important, and I believe sort of all disruptions that we've seen in in the market they they go about creating something at the edge of regulation and they were pushing regulation in one space or the, the other uh, i don't know if you remember sort of the the two liner startups um, dr smile and plus dental there's a mm, huge yeah. hype around those like five years ago yeah. and for example dr smile the the lkr came in there and stormed with machine guns their entire headquarters because they thought, okay, <laughs> they're doing something illegal. And because yeah. they were exactly also sort of at, at the verge of like where you're allowed to go, where it's like still not regulated enough. Um, mm. Same goes for, for like the, all of the, the providers that buy up uh, a dental or like uh, general practitioners offices, um, how they split their work, what the ownership structure around that is. Um, there's always this this part of like legal and regulative risk that you have to factor in um, to to a different degree. Yeah. No, no, that's quite intriguing to see how that will develop. For our audience, thanks again for listening to our podcasts. We hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a rating. You can also follow us on LinkedIn to stay up to date with our latest episodes. We appreciate your support and look forward to seeing you again soon. Bye.